On June 5, 1968, Robert F. Kennedy would be gunned down in the kitchen passageway of the Ambassador Hotel. While bleeding out, a rosary would be placed in his hand, and he would ask if everyone was all right. While being lifted onto a stretcher, he uttered his last words, Don't lift me. On the night of August 8, 1969, Sharon Tate, who is more than eight months pregnant, is murdered along with four others by the Manson family. In 1974, Arliss Perry is murdered on the 99th birthday of Aleister Crowley. Her body would be found the following day in the Stanford Memorial Church naked from the waist down, her jeans folded across her legs making the shape of a diamond or a Masonic compass. A three-foot-long altar candle was inserted into her vagina and another between her breast in a crude sacrilegious display. From 1976 until August of 1977, New Yorkers would live in fear of the 44 caliber, now more commonly known as the Son of Sam, and the killings would leave six dead and seven wounded. In the late 70s, Intermeyer Park in New York was covered in satanic symbols and SS lightning bolts, and decapitated German shepherds would be found. On June 10, 1983, the remains of show business promoter Roy Radin are found by a beekeeper and a forest ranger in what would come to be known as the Cotton Club murder. In 1987, Whitley Strieber publishes his work of alien abduction communion that would be turned into a movie starring Christopher Walken in 1989. So, is there a thread that connects all these seemingly disparate events? Or are they all as random and unconnected as they may seem on the surface? Does this all go back to the men and women in black outfits wearing the silver crosses with crimson serpents embedded upon them, with blood-red Mindy's goats on their collars? The misfits in black cloaks who you could find walking their German shepherds during the height of the countercultural revolution? Or are they an unfairly maligned group whose colorful rhetoric and penchant for the dramatic led to unfair persecution? Yes, everybody, that's right. Today we are talking about the process church of the final judgment. And we're going to be asking the question, animal lovers or animal sacrificers? Groovy misfits or fascist Satanists? An organic church or an intelligence-led cult? These are the questions that we are going to be asking ourselves, and perhaps you are going to have the answer. You are listening to Things Observed, and I am your host, Luke Marshall. And as I said, today we are talking about the process church of the final judgment. I want to come up with a fun subject, a slightly scary subject for the Halloween season that we are now entering October, the spookiest of months. And I thought, what spookier a subject than the process church of the final judgment? And they're a group that I have heard a lot about. I have seen them referenced in all different kinds of conspiracy lore, but I myself had never really done a deep dive into the subject. And I, from the little bit of research I had done into the group before starting to do this research for the series that we're about to embark on, had kind of found a mix of information, some of it seeming to be uh, reputable and a lot of it seeming not to be that reputable and so I myself wanted to get down to the bottom of it and perhaps you want to get down to the bottom of this subject and perhaps you like myself um, 
didn't really know all that much about it, but it's just a group that you had seen mentioned before. So that is what we're going to be talking about. I will leave the sources down for this show in the show notes so you can see them on Spotify or Apple Podcast or wherever you are, whatever service you are using to listen to this. And I'm going to try to get better about leaving my sources for things so that way you guys can do greater research yourself. We're going to be using Love, Fear, Sex, and Death by Adam Parfrey. Not Adam Parfrey, he's the publisher. By uh, Timothy Wiley a lot today. That's going to be a lot of where our sources come from. Also a blog post by Recluse, who some of you guys might be familiar with in this circle. So I will also leave a link to his series of uh, blog posts about the Process Church. And uh, anything else, I'm also going to use a little bit of The Ultimate Evil by Maury Terry. And we're going to get much deeper into that book and the Son of Sam aspect of this in later episodes. But for this episode, we are going to kind of just do a general overview of the process church and go into a little bit of their history and in the next episode we will conclude our general history of the church and their eventual transformation into the best friends animal society and all the iterations of the process church before then and we are also going to talk about in the next episode some of their cultural influence how they have had a much more wide influence than one would maybe think on the surface. We're going to talk about some of the different musicians that they influenced. And then after that, we will get into the Son of Sam killings in a separate episode. And we will also get into the Manson family killings in yet another episode. So we are going to be talking about the Process Church for the month of October. And... I'm personally excited. It's been fun getting to learn about the Process Church and get a uh, more in-depth understanding of them. As I said, it's just been a group that I had seen referenced time and time again, but I really just didn't know much about them. But if you're like me, you've probably seen a lot of uh, pictures from their magazine. You have seen kind of uh, just their generally creepy aesthetic that they've got going on their apocalyptic rhetoric and uh very captivating stuff i mean you see any pictures from their magazines that they put out and it's hard not to want to learn more about this group so i finally have decided that i'm going to do the deep dive and so now you guys are here along with me for my paranoid schizophrenic look into the process church so without further ado let's ask the question unfairly maligned group or sinister cult carrying out the devil's work Is it all to the death? Better hold your breath in the cell. I prevail 
start in our story but the very very beginning and that is going to be with Robert Moore or maybe known to you as Robert de Grimston but Robert Moore was born in Shanghai China on October 8th 1935 but he would be brought to England within a year by his mother and he was by some accounts I couldn't verify this but the son of a British military officer but once again, I could not confirm this, but he was born in Shanghai, China, so it would make sense if uh, that were the case, you know, um, considering that he comes from an English family. And the other founder, Mary Ann McLean, was born in Glasgow in 1931. And so now we're going to jump a little bit ahead in time, and starting in 1954 through 1957, Robert Moore would serve in the King's Royal Hussars. So he was a British military officer, and during his time as a military officer, Moore would say that he developed an aristocratic poise and a dignified bearing, great assets for the charismatic leader of a cult. And so Moore in 1958, so after he was done with his military service, would end up in his first marriage and would start studying architecture at Regent Street Polytechnic Institute. And it was during this time that he would meet Timothy Wiley, once again, the author of Love, Sex, Fear, and Death, which was written for Adam Parfrey's Feral House Publications and is going to be one of the main source sources of today's information and so it was at the Regent Street Polytechnic Institute that Wiley and Moore would meet with one another and it's interesting to note something that Wiley just kind of casually mentions in Love, Sex, Fear, and Death um, and the way that he casually mentions this it's almost like as if he's trying to fuck with his more like paranoid readers or his more skeptical readers and so he's talking about um his early life, specifically um, his public school education, and he would say, public schools in that era, they were still dedicated to turning out little empire builders. What They were expensive schools for the scions of the upper classes. They were brutal places, many hundreds of years old, and weren't known for encouraging sensitivity or self-knowledge. I should add that my family was not drawn from the upper classes. I got into Charterhouse, my public school, through a stroke of luck and my mother's connections in British intelligence from working for MI6 before the war. 
And so, uh, you know, Wiley, he was in the process church. He was, you know, basically kind of like the number three guy. I mean, it was but definitely like a hierarchical structure to this cult. But um, he was kind of one of the most senior members. He was definitely an IP, an inner processian, as opposed to an outer processian. Um, and, you know, as it's been stated, I mean, he knew Robert Moore before he would become Robert de Grimston, before he would get into compulsions analysis and all this stuff that we're about to talk about. But it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, Timothy Wiley, he kind of paints a maybe a more rosy picture of the process cult than I would. Not that he doesn't have um, some judgment about them at some points, and not that he thinks that everything was all just hunky-dory in concerns to the process, but, uh, you know, he definitely doesn't think that, at least from my reading of Love, Sex, Fear, and Death, that it was some sort of intelligence operation, um, that it was, you know, a super sinister thing. So um, it's kind of interesting that he just, you know, kind of flippantly mentions his mother's involvement with MI6 before the war. And uh, I have heard from other sources that his mother was a code breaker with top secret clearance. I didn't see where people are getting this information from, but I've seen some pretty credible people as opposed to some of the... Uh, more circumstantial accounts of the process church say that his mother was a code breaker for military intelligence so perhaps that is the truth i couldn't verify that myself but it came from more reputable sources than some of the others that i have uh, looked into while diving into this subject so anyway in 1960 robert's younger brother would undergo dianetics therapy and see success with it which would peak Robert's interest in Scientology. For those of you who don't know, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, would write a book called Dianetics. And so Robert's younger brother is getting interested in Scientology, and Robert is beginning to see the changes that it is making in his brother's life. And Robert is beginning to think, well, maybe this is something that I should get interested in. And so the following year, 1961, Marianne McLean would join the Church of Scientology and quickly make her way up the ranks and become a successful auditor. So at this point, Marianne and Robert do not know one another, but they both are getting interested in Scientology. And in 1962, Moore would quit architectural school and would join the Church of Scientology where he would meet Mary Ann. And so Moore is in his first marriage at this point. He is not happy in this marriage um, and seems to kind of be bored with life. He's really questioning his decisions about being an architect and studying in architectural school. And so he drops out of architectural school and now he is getting super into Scientology. And it was through this that he would meet Mary Ann. And Mary Ann, from all accounts, was terrific at auditing people. And for those of you who don't know what auditing is, this is by no means a comprehensive view of it, but they would set you up to an e-meter, which is kind of like a bunk device that I guess measures the electrical impulses on your skin, and they would use this with you while you're being audited, while you're telling all this stuff about your personal life and 
kind of judging what you say based off the reading from these e-meters. Once again, not a comprehensive view, but this isn't really what we're talking about today. We're talking about the process church. Um, and Marianne apparently had this way about her where she could really make people feel comfortable and get people to open up about things that they would otherwise never open up about. And so she is a very talented auditor, and this would help her make her way up the ranks in Scientology. And it's interesting to note that the couple would meet through Scientology, which, as stated earlier, was created by L. Ron Hubbard after his involvement with the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is, you know, just Crowley magic type shit. And specifically, L. Ron Hubbard would be connected to rocket scientist Jack Parsons, who perhaps I'll do an episode just all about him in the future, because what a fascinating figure, to say the least. And they would perform black magic sex rituals with one another. And some would argue, I perhaps would even argue, that L. Ron Hubbard's knowledge of black magic and magic in, ge in general would be really essential in the creation of Scientology. But that, my friends, is a story for another day. But now we are going to read um, a quote from Sinister Forces. Um, this might be book one or book three. I honestly can't remember. But it's from the Sinister Forces series by Peter Lavenda, who... Uh, <laughs> we talked a lot about Peter Lavenda in our last episode and just in general with our whole dive into the Tom DeLonge subject. So we're not going to talk about Peter Lavenda right now as much as I love talking about Peter Lavenda. But he would write in Sinister Forces, At the Hubbard Institute of Scientology in London, he met Marianne McLean, a woman who is said to have been engaged to prize fighter Sugar Ray Robinson in America for a brief period before returning to England. Marianne McLean was born in Glasgow on November 20, 1931, and was thus four years Robert Moore's senior. Before she met Moore, however, she became involved with several high-ranking British politicians a la Christine Keeler of the Profumo Affair. Christine Killer was the mistress of British War Minister John Profumo and Soviet GRU agent Yegevny Ivanov. She herself also alleged that she slept with President John Kennedy on a trip she made to the United States in the summer of 1962. This, then, was the situation at the time Marianne McLean met Robert Moore at Scientology headquarters in London. They then decided to break away from their own operations and get married. For someone like Marianne, it was probably a wise move. Her profile in British society was not entirely low. Engaged to an American prize fighter running in the same circles as Keeler and her associates, who were all being rounded up to help the police in their inquiries, it was a smart move to decant to the Scientologists and marry an intelligent and charismatic architect like Robert Moore, as cover, if nothing else. Marianne McLean's former fiancé, Sugar Ray Robinson, had even intended to make a film of the Profumo Affair with Christine Keeler in the starring role opposite Sugar Ray himself, thus strengthening the length between McLean, Robinson, Keeler, and the Profumo Affair, and from Profumo to Process. So for those of you who don't know what the Profumo Affair is, or who could not kind of gather what the Profumo Affair is from our reading that we just went over from Lavenda, it was a sex scandal that um, affected a British politician and some other high-level people in British society, 
and it was kind of just like a sexual blackmail operation um, involving prostitutes so uh, we don't have time to go in for that we could do a whole subject just on that alone a whole episode or two um, but for our purposes all we need to know is that according to some accounts Mary Ann was involved with this and that she had through her days as a high-end escort um, met some pretty important people in British society and I don't think that I need to tell this crowd how much sexual blackmail operations intelligence agencies and all of this just go hand in hand whether we're talking about Epstein Franklin just you you name it you guys all know I don't have to inform you guys you guys are an informed group yourself so let's just go on to now Wiley talking about this subject and kind of addressing it and we'll get a different perspective from Lavenda which I'm very curious as to where Lavenda got some of that information because it's something that people say time and time again but Wiley um, whether he is doing um, some kind of PR for the process even after his time as a processian or whether or not this is um, the truth, let's get Wiley's view on this subject. Born illegitimately to a Scottish mother and an alcoholic father, Marianne never knew she'd been largely abandoned to live with relatives. After a wretched and unloved childhood in the slums of Glasgow, she made her way down to London, where she fell under the sway of a group of Maltese pimps. A young life of having to fend for herself must have awarded her the necessary skills to give men what they both wanted and deserved. Although she would have wished for this to become public, wouldn't have wished for this to become public knowledge at the time, she appeared in the telling to be quite proud and unashamed of her life as a high-class call girl, with the emphasis naturally on high class. She boasted too of her time in America on the arm of boxer Sugar Ray Robinson and the many high-level and powerful men she had met in her calling. It's been suggested in some recent articles that Marianne might have had some involvement with the Profumo affair, the sex scandal that brought down a cabinet minister and the conservative government. Before I joined the process, I bumped into Christine Keeler, one of the call girls as a witness, who had heard nothing of Marianne. Besides, I'm pretty certain that she had played a part in this that if she had played a part in the scandal, she'd have been only too ready to tell us all about it. It was often difficult to tell whether Marianne was exaggerating about the people and events in her life or indeed plain old making it all up. I certainly believed her in the moment, yet there's no record, for example, of her ever marrying as the story went Sugar Ray, and his son assures us that to his knowledge there was never a Marianne in his father's life. And so there's a little bit about the background of Marianne McLean, and now we are going to return back to 1963 so we now have Robert and Marianne they just met one another and the couple separated from the Church of Scientology yeah they they shacked up together at this point and Robert would leave his first marriage and so starting in 1963 when the couple separated from the Church of Scientology they would begin to work on their own offshoot which at the time was called compulsions analysis and they would use Wiley as their guinea pig. And so compulsions analysis, they apparently, um, from Wiley's telling of the story, they had some real disagreements with the Church of Scientology. They did not appreciate some of their more out there beliefs. And they 
uh, more more interested in the psychotherapeutic aspect of it and so they would break off and do their own group and they would be um, inspired um, get influence from all types of people whether it be Alfred Adler and um, kind of the idea of power relations and even some Nietzsche in there and what have you so they're breaking off they're doing their own things kind of a bit of a Scientology offshoot or at least influenced by their time in Scientology they would still be using the e-meter for instance in their own new way that they came up with outside of Scientology and so in 1964 they would begin to conduct therapy sessions for those in the public out of their apartment on Wigmore Street in London and the next year L. Ron Hubbard would declare the couple to be suppressive persons for them being naughty 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 and using the e-meter in a way not recognized by the Church of Scientology and just kind of for being a spin-off so they are heretics and L. Ron Hubbard is uh, you know declaring them suppressive persons and this would also be the same year that Moore would change his last name to DeGrimston and compulsions analysis would form into the process due to what Wiley describes as a sense of a shared spirituality among the group. And Wiley describes that what some of the group exercises um, consisted of in this whole compulsions analysis group um, now turning into the process and kind of their modified form of Scientology auditing. So Wiley says, The communication course, which we attended on two evenings a week, was a combination of an introduction to the psychological insights of compulsion analysis, as well as a time given over for the exercises that were to have such a powerful effect on us. Three of these activities, picked up by Robert and Marianne during their time with Scientology, I still regard as being very useful. We'd pair off and sitting knees touching, we'd be required to look our partners in their eyes for about five minutes without any attitude or zoning out. It's much harder than it sounds. Either party can momentarily stop the process if they notice their partner is losing focus. Another exercise we practiced as partners was to exchange insults and criticisms in turn, laying the emphasis on being able to receive the abuse without having any overt emotional reactions. This latter exercise became more extreme when during the course of each evening, one person was singled out and placed on a chair in the center of the group. There were often as many as 30 or 40 people in the room and everyone was invited to hurl the most withering criticisms they could perceive about the person in the center. Since many of us knew each other so well by this time, so the comments would get acerbic. A well-placed arrow was as highly commended as was the ability to withstand the abusive onslaught without reacting to it. So Maury Terry in The Ultimate Evil would kind of describe compulsions analysis in a little bit less, uh, what could you say, flattering of a light. And he would say, on their own and with their new cult games, the DeGrimstons began to experiment with sophisticated mind control games. They started a center to study what they termed compulsion analysis for research into an elimination of compulsive behavior. 
They preached a doctrine of free choice, declaring that individuals were completely responsible for their own fates, actions, and afflictions. Marianne, for instance, reportedly believed that Jews chose the gas chambers, and even birth defects were said to be freely selected and carried into the present from past lives. And the de Grimstons also believed in reincarnation. And uh, most of that is 100% true. I mean, I guess that you could... Uh, decide whether or not you want to call them mind control games but uh yeah we'll get more into that as we delve deeper into the story but yes they did have this belief that no matter what happened to you that is basically a result of all the decisions that you have ever made culminate in what it is that happens to you and that we are all a hundred percent responsible for anything that happens to us so it's like almost kind of uh well, like, imagine like a libertarian type of view of self-responsibility taken like into like the spiritual dimension. Um, so definitely a very intense point of view. And, you know, Robert de Grimston, when he would give speeches and stuff, he would often use the example of if the... Uh, wheel from an airplane fell off and it hit and killed someone he would ask the crowd whether or not they thought that it was that person's fault or if this was just kind of random happenstance and then he would argue from there that it is indeed the person who got hit by the wheel's fault so um definitely a very intense point of view to say the very least and so the Process Church would then go on to set up shop in a mansion in the upper class haven of the Mayfair District in London. And it would actually be Wiley who would design the interior, because as you guys probably remember, Robert and Wiley met in architecture school. So he would design the inside of the Balfour Mansion. And I didn't do research into this, but I wonder if it has to do with like a the same Balfour from like the Balfour Declaration in regards to Israel and all that. I don't know. I don't even, it's been so long since I've researched that stuff that I don't remember, but I would imagine that it probably um, takes its name from that, that same guy. But anyhow, that's a whole different rabbit hole. But Wiley hadn't yet fully committed to the cult until an interesting experience that he relays in the book, Fear, Sex, Love, Death. And he will say, I was alone at home one night watching television, which in those days in England finished normal programming at 11 p.m. Unwilling to get up from my chair to turn the TV off, the screen filled with the snow of electrons striking the cathode tube in random patterns. Then, as I idly watched what we used to call Channel X, the haphazard blitz of electrons started to resolve into discernible images. I thought it might be a trick in my eye that my eyes were playing on me, but the effect continued to grow into a more recognizable image. I jerked upright when I realized I was being shown moving snapshots of my life. Something was displaying images that only I would have known about. What on earth was going on? Was I going crazy? I freaked out. I simply couldn't handle what seemed to be happening, and I took off out of the apartment, running full tilt through Hyde Pate until I arrived at Balfour Place. Marianne was 
up and I threw myself sobbing and incoherent at her feet. To my astonishment and relief, she took the whole experience completely in stride, reassuring me that such things happen to people like me. She comforted me, telling me that she'd always thought I had an extraterrestrial heritage. She told me about the serpent people, an early off-planet race, remembered and symbolized in the ancient text as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. She claimed I was part of that race. So, uh... Very interesting, to say the least, um, you know, <laughs> to tell Wiley that he's part of the ancient serpent race. And we'll get more into Wiley and serpent symbolism here in just a little bit. But uh, very interesting. And, you know, we're kind of led to believe at this point in the book that the group was more of a psychotherapy group who was, you know, more interested in psychology, and they broke off from the Church of Scientology due to their disagreements with its more outrageous tenets. But this shows that at even this point in the story, that it definitely had a spiritual flair to say the least. And um, this is also, you know, around the time that the group began to have a keen interest in the concept of reincarnation and began to interpret much of their experience and personalities in light of perceived past lives, kind of as mentioned by Maury Terry earlier on. But once again, we will return to Wiley to see how these this talk of past lives and their deepening spiritual convictions would flourish at this point. Although we seldom shared the most intimate details of our sessions with others, it became common knowledge that some of the scars on our emotional bodies were the results of traumas carried over from previous lifetimes. This, I suspect, helped open the door to a more transcendent viewpoint in many of us. Reincarnation was not a belief that we had grown up with, yet we found that an acceptance of it, however it might occur, brings with it a wider, more spiritualized context for how life might actually work. Serious consideration of reincarnation must lead to an equally serious questioning as to who or what might be behind this grand scheme. By the time we got to Nassau, benefiting from the less physically disturbed atmosphere of the Caribbean, sorry, psychically disturbed atmosphere of the Caribbean, we found our meditations and group visual visualizations deepening. We were becoming so open and relaxed with each other that we'd frequently have the sense that we were one mind that we'd ceased to be the individual consciousness, but had fused in a way we didn't understand. It was our nature collectively to ask questions. The whole system of psychotherapy was based on good questions, so it was perfectly natural for us to start setting up specific questions to ask in the course of a meditation. Before long, the more sensitive among us began feeling we were in contact during the meditation with some form of non-corporeal intelligences, at first, we simply called them the beings. It was all very strange and unexpected, and yet when we came back in from our meditations, the answers we shared with one another were invariably meaningful and often synchronized. We tested the beings as best as we knew how until we grew increasingly confident in them and trusting in their counsel and guidance. The biggest test came when we were due to leave Nassau. We had earned enough money between us to have flown anywhere within reason. We had exhausted our knowledge of the whereabouts of possible desert islands. Why not turn it over to the beings? Let's meditate and see what they say. So, um, I maybe should have explained this before reading that quote. But So they were in London, but then they would move to the Bahamas. And they moved to the Bahamas because they were... Um, 
in the words of Wiley, thinking about purchasing an island for the group. And I believe at this time that they had about 30 members, according to Wiley, in the Process Church. And some of these members were more wealthy than some of the other members. And uh, so since some of these members were more wealthy, apparently they had the type of money to consider buying an island, which um, must have been some pretty wealthy kids uh, for just 30 of them um, being able to maybe buy an island. And at this point, the church had told people to, uh, you know, give up their possessions and to basically give all of their money over to the church, uh, to the process, I guess. They hadn't formalized as a church just quite yet. So they went to Nassau to, uh, you know, consider buying an island or setting up headquarters somewhere else. And so this is also when they start to get this more spiritual view where they're talking about reincarnation and some other things and they start listening to the beings <laughs> and what would the beings say other than it was time to move on down to mexico way my friends and so june of 1966 around 30 processions would take six german shepherds with them to the bahamas moving out of their short-lived Balfour home, which they had communally been living in. And the group had at this point, yeah, they'd been told to give up all their possessions and to give their money to the group. And yeah, they hoped to buy an island. And once again, they would shortly move to Mexico after only three months. And in September, they would travel to a small village in the Yucatan Peninsula and set up shop on the grounds of a former salt factory called Extol, where de Grimston would write the Extol Dialogues. And um, this was a pretty crazy time for the group, even from Wiley's account of the events. So during this time, they had enough money to contemplate buying an island, supposedly, but they had to, for some reason, rough it without running water and staving off starvation by the so-called miracle of the fish when a large fish just happened to wash up on shore and the fish seemed like it hadn't been there too long, like it wasn't rotting. And so they viewed this to be some sort of miracle, a gift from the beings that was basically saying that they were in the right place doing the right thing. Because as you'll remember, that everything is a result of all your previous decisions. And so this is just kind of confirming their beliefs in total responsibility. And in the book that Wiley wrote, he notes that due to his lifelong affinity for snakes, which led him to have a boa named Temptation, ironically, as a younger man, that he wasn't surprised to find himself in the role of a serpent in the garden um, when they were doing these historical reenactments that became another one of their exercise. So they would take some famous historical or mythological scene and all the members of the group would be assigned a role to play and reenact that role. And Wiley got chosen to be the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And he would similarly be cast into the role of Judas during their enactment of the life of Christ. 
So Wiley is most certainly getting um, some interesting roles. You could say that he's getting typecast into a certain type of spiritual role. Um, but Wiley, after being expelled from the garden during this actment, um, enactment, wouldn't be accepted back until he would self-flagellate in front of Mary and the rest of the group. And the practice of self-flagellation would make a future appearance at a London performance piece, according to Wiley. And for a brief period of time, members of the groups just adopted this as a practice before uh, dropping it. So, you know, they're braiding together ropes and lashing themselves on the back <laughs> in the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, and there's also a number of other scenes that Wiley describes that are pretty interesting. One that's a little bit comical is that Wiley would be called into a room alone with Mary and Robert, who came to be known as the Omega. Um, you know, so they are the top of the hierarchical structure of the group and everything kind of flows down from then and all the money is kicked up to the top in the group, but Wiley would recall being called into the room alone with Mary and Robert, and Mary would just expose her naked body, showing the boobies and stuff for, uh, I don't know, some some reason or another, and it supposedly wasn't even sexual. Uh, Wiley theorizes that maybe she was just trying to test Robert or something, but this is kind of giving you a bit of the atmosphere of what's taking place we're listening to the beings we're showing the boobies to random people we are reenacting the garden of eden and the life of christ in these group enactments they're doing these long intense meditations members of the group are just told to stare at each other for long periods of time um, the kind of kookiness is starting to ramp up at this point and so on October 7th, Hurricane Inez would strike and the process refused to evacuate after some local authorities basically came and said, listen, this hurricane is going to come through. It's really going to fuck shit up. You guys ought to head out. But they believed that they were being guided by the beings. So, of course, they're not going to leave where the beings told them to go. And they would miraculously, I guess, in their view, um, survive the storm after it changed course at the last minute and the storm is believed to in general have killed anywhere between 750 and 900 people in total and so this would only strengthen their belief in uh, in their own destiny and that they were doing the right thing because you know if they were doing the wrong thing i guess they all would have been killed and that would be on them and they would be responsible for being killed by the hurricane but they weren't so they believed that they were heading in the right direction and so after this, they would move back to London, where they would set up a coffee shop named Satan's Cavern in the basement of Balfour Place. And so they set up this coffee shop. You got all kinds of interesting characters, some famous people who would come into the coffee shop. Perhaps we will get more into some of the people who visited the coffee shop here in just a little bit. But it was also around this time that Wiley says Robert and Mary began to grow more distant from the group and that they were kind of enjoying their wealth while the others in the group continued to live a life of voluntary poverty. And so now we are going to once again read from old Wiley and he is going to say, 
When the Omega, what Marianne and Robert were now calling themselves, started retiring to the privacy of their apartment, they left the making of the money and the day-by-day rerunning of the place to the rest of us. Marianne kept a firm hand on what was going on within the community through a series of proxies, the four or five women who had become close to her over the previous years. This point can also be seen as the start of the matriarchy. These were the women who now wielded the power directly devolved from Mary Ann. This was a pattern that was to follow, the process through its various iterations. Needless to say, a substantial percentage of money made by us was to be passed up the line. Regardless of how much we made, the Omega would always get its healthy cut. In fact, money seldom, if ever, went down the line. Even on the frequent occasions that the rest of us might have been scrounging for food subsequent to the extol experience, the Omega always lived in luxury. So we got kind of a form of Reaganomics, uh, Robbernomics, <laughs> that is going on amongst the group where, uh, yeah, all of it's being kicked up to Robert and Mary Ann. But now we might do just a quick little digression from the story of the process going through kind of the timeline as things are happening and talk about um, who it is that is truly running the cult. And that from Wiley's account and from the accounts of others is Marianne McLean, who, yeah, ran the cult. And Robert, you know, in this telling of the story, served mainly as a figurehead and as the source of the group's theology to a large extent. But it was truly Mary's domineering personality and Robert's hands-off nature that would lead to Marianne being the true force behind the process, who would be guiding the process. And Wiley would speak on this when he would say that, By the time we all sold our possessions, said our goodbyes to unbelieving families and distraught friends, and set off to find our island, there had always been some strange whispers circulating, mainly among the girls in the group. Who was this extraordinary woman who called herself Marianne? Where did her uncanny ability to see into the very deepest recesses of our personalities come from? How could she know so accurately our most shameful needs and greeds? And how was she able to steer so wisely in the ways of righteousness? Sure, the girls would say, Robert's out there in front, but that's only because Marianne wants it that way. It was never any mystery to the women that Marianne was the power behind the throne. And so, uh, yeah, um, that is coming from Wiley, and he will also say that it was Claudia, a Welsh woman with a Celtic flair, who first said it aloud as five or six of us, all women but myself, sat crammed into the tiny space she had carved out for herself on top of a large closet in the basement of Balfour Place. It was so obvious. How could we have missed it? Marianne must be the incarnate goddess herself, the mother of this world, and she chosen to incarnate and manifest to us, to us. While I'd heard some of this spiritual gossip before, Claudia saying it was such intuitive conviction shook me up, but it still didn't make any sense to me. I had already rejected the Anglican Church as a schoolboy and had long regarded myself as an atheist. No doubt Mary Ann was an exceptional woman, but the goddess? That I simply could not accept. To be fair, Mary Ann, in those early stages, I don't believe that she ever claimed this role for herself. But over the years, the acknowledgement became implicit, though seldom talked about. We all just knew who she was, and I suspect that we felt it too sacred to Bundy about. 
and to be more down-to-earth maybe if we had talked about it more openly, the concept would not have quite the same hold on us. Somewhat later, when we were all playing with different names and identities, Marianne came to call herself after the goddess Hectate, Hecate, known among others things for her hounds, and then briefly after the Hindu divinity, Kali. So perhaps she did have some fleeting insight into the damage she frequently inflicted on those who displeased her. And so um, now I'm going to read from Recluse's blog, which I mentioned would be one of the sources that I am getting this information from. Um, and Recluse, in his blog post, um, he also uses these quotes when talking about the cult. And he points out something very interesting. So this is me reading from Recluse. At this point, let us briefly pause in our narrative to consider the implications of Marianne identifying herself with Hecate and Kali. First, Hecate, and this is coming from, he's quoting mythology by Edith Hamilton, Hecate was the goddess of the dark of the moon, the black nights when the moon is hidden. She was associated with deeds of darkness, the goddess of the crossways, which were held to be ghostly places of evil magic and awful divinity. Hecate of hell, mighty to shatter every stubborn thing. Hark, hark, her hounds are baying through the town. Where three roads meet, there she is, standing. And so now we are back to recluse speaking. Hecate was also considered to be the goddess of necromancy, and in some accounts of medieval folklore, hailed as the chief deity of the European witch cults, as Shakespeare makes reference to in Macbeth. As a lunar deity, she was also closely associated with dogs, which makes Marianne assuming her name all the more fitting. While I've generally discounted the long-standing notions of individuals associated with the process engaging in canine sacrifice, it is interesting to note that such things were attributed to Hecate. And now he quotes The World of Classical Myth by Carl A. P. Ruck and Danley Staples. Typically of such chthonic sacrifice was the dog that could be offered to Hecate, where three roads met, symbolic of her tripartite nature, an offering that would be made at night, unlike the daylight meal for an Olympian. The dog was considered a tame version of the wolf, and not entirely capable of reverting unexpectedly into its werewolf ancestor. With all that sinister connotations, including the possibility that a human could be possessed by its wild and outlaw spirit. We have inherited this tradition in our attitude towards bitches and metaphor like the hounds of hell. And so um, just an interesting aside. And so thanks to uh, the person who tweeted at me to check out Recluse's blog post about the process. I've also found out about some other interesting information from there. And also thanks to William Ramsey for um convincing me to read Love, Fear, Sex, and Death, which I'd kind of already been planning to read, but definitely when William Ramsey said that, I should check that out if I'm doing a deep dive into the process. Thanks to him. So um, now, anyways, uh, we can get back to the story, but needless to say that it was Marianne McLean who, by all accounts in the story, is kind of the... Uh, Maybe not the brains behind the uh, operation, because, I mean, it was Robert who was coming up with much of the theology and who was doing much of the writing. 
but it was really Marianne who was running things on an organizational level and she was the true power behind the process and she was the guiding hand. And so when 1967 rolled along, the group issued their first magazine called The Common Mar Market, which they freely distributed to members of the House of Commons. And that same year, Robert and Mary would travel to the Middle East, visiting both Israel and Turkey, and Robert would write the apocalyptic books, As It Is, and A Candle in Hell. And the Process Magazine would put out the Freedom of Expression and the Mindbenders issue. So um, this is really a time of not only Robert and Marianne traveling, but of a lot of creative output. A lot of writings are coming out at this time period. And um, they're kind of cementing their style through their magazine more. And this would also be the same year that many processians would move to New Orleans and start a chapter in the French Quarter. And so, uh, as you guys have probably noticed, something that I think that is very interesting as I am reading through all these accounts of the Process Church and as I am reading through Wiley's account of the Process Church and as I look through the timeline that he has in the beginning of his book is just how much they are moving around and the fact that they are able to afford a mansion in London and you know kind of like the elite haven the wealthy district and um, how they were considering buying their own island and I know that cults tend to go after people with a lot of money to convert to being members so that way they can help fund themselves and whatnot but um it's just very interesting how much money that they, Robert and Marianne seem to have to be able to do all this traveling, to be constantly setting up headquarters in different places. Um, and I don't know, certainly very sketchy. One could very easily wonder where it is that they are getting all their money. And, you know, obviously that is not uh, proof of them being intelligence or proof of anything more sinister than what we're being told by Wiley going on but it is very interesting to note um, so just the question that I'm simply posing is where are they getting all of this money from but when they would move to um, New Orleans and set up a chapter in the French Quarter they would also incorporate themselves in New Orleans as the process church of the final judgment and I have also heard that the lawyer who would help them incorporate themselves as the process church of the final judgment, that he was a Freemason, I believe. Um, once again, this is another thing that I read that I couldn't quite confirm myself, but um, I believe I heard that from ghost stories at the from the end of the world or um, whatever the name of that podcast was about it. So... Um, and he seems to be a pretty reputable source. And so, uh, yeah, very interesting that uh, this lawyer is supposedly a Freemason. Um, but anyhow, and just another thing that was kind of funny is um, the lawyer who would incorporate them, this guy who is allegedly a Freemason, who I've heard was a Freemason, he would also, Wiley says in the book, um, <laughs> that he would like suggests that it should be the process church of christ and lucifer or of jesus and satan or something like that and even the process was like i don't know that that name's a little bit crazy so it's kind of interesting that 
even them, that they would uh, kind of shy away from that name. But within the next year, the New Orleans chapter would close and the group would have a brief stint in Los Angeles, as well as open a chapter in Munich. And then, once again, they would move to New York after yet another brief stint and open a closed chapter in 1968. And, you know, closed chapters basically just for like inner processions um, before moving back to Europe. So yet another move with the group. And this time the group would be split between London and those in Amsterdam. And uh, during the Christmas season of 1968, the group would set up headquarters in Rome. And uh, that will lead us, uh, maybe perhaps next episode, we will talk about uh, the interesting Whitley-Strieber connection, which some of you guys might even know a little bit about if you listen to my second part of our series on Tom DeLonge and To The Stars Academy. But then the year 1969 would roll around and that would also be the year that the uh, infamous fear and death issues of the magazine would be released. And that basically takes us about halfway through our uh, journey into the story of the process. But there are a couple more things that I would like to mention um, before we uh, finish today's episode. And in the next episode, we are going to finish the story of the Process Church. And we will also get a little bit deeper into the theology of the Process Church. Because, I mean, as of the moment, we only know a few things that have been mentioned as far as kind of like the uh, theological and spiritual views in the process church and we'll definitely see how those views come to evolve later on in the story but i will read a um, excerpt excerpt from timothy wiley um, that kind of goes on to explain some of the beliefs of the process church so everybody can get a better idea of what it is that they believe um, aside from just, you know, some sort of simplistic telling where it's like pointing the finger and going Satanist, even though that is one of my favorite games. But if I was to choose which of the major influences in the field of psychology we most closely resembled, it would have been the Austrian psychologist Alfred Adler. It was the power dynamics that were constantly shifting between us all that so fascinated Marianne. And I imagine Adler's intellectual kinship with Nietzsche would have also appealed to her. The suggestion, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, was a favorite of Marianne's and frequently repeated, although I doubt if she ever actually read the German philosopher. The process theology that had started to take shape in extol, when the beings who had guided us gradually morphed in our collective imagination into the three gods, Jehovah, Lucifer, and Satan, with their emissary Christ, was shaped and polished in those endless meanings. And what a convoluted theology it came to be. The three gods themselves were seen as essentially co-equal and yet revealed different qualities. The aspects also manifested as a duality. Jehovah might display strength and leadership, but could also lapse into tyranny. Lucifer, the lightbringer, could degenerate into a cold detachment. Satan could manifest as fiery inspiration or self-indulgent excess. It was not quite so clear what Christ represented apart from a self-sacrificing, unifying principle that could lapse into victimhood. Within the community, I believe most of us thought of these gods more as archetypes that represented four different types of human personality. 
Thus, each of us became, in Marianne's eyes, a representative of one of the four gods. Marianne became self-identified with Jehovah, as Robert was with Christ. I, in turn, became known as Luciferic. It wasn't too long before these types became expanded so that each of us represented some combination of these two gods. Marianne claimed herself as reflective of Jehovah and Satan. Robert was identified as Lucifer in Christ, and I, along with many others, was dubbed L.S. for Lucifer, Satan. Personally, I never thought of these gods as divine. As an examination of human behavior in a way of understanding fundamental impulses and drives, this personality typing had some value in being able to sum up a person's character quickly. I suspect its main benefit, however, was that it allowed Marianne, and to a lesser extent Robert, a theological arena in which to weave their magic.
And so there's Wiley um, talking a little bit about the beliefs of the Process Church. Perhaps I should have read that closer to the top, but we are still um, just kind of going into the background history um, of the uh, cult, and perhaps we will dive more deeply into the beliefs next episode, along as with the history and the cultural import that the process would have. But anyways, I'll quit teasing next episode, because you guys are good boys and good girls, and you're going to keep listening, because you want to hear what's coming next. You want to be informed, and, you know, I'm about to say that you should sell all of your possessions I'm going to set up a way to where you guys can start donating me money. Donate me all of your money, and I will be your spiritual guide. And we are going to do it much better than the process. We actually are going to change the world and bring about the apocalypse. And you guys are totally responsible for all the bad things that are going to happen to you if you don't give me all your money. So just give me all your money. It's simple. It's easy to do. It really is. Anyhow, I'm joking. I'm going on a rant. I'm having fun. We're having fun, boys and girls. We're just a bunch of boys and girls having fun. There's nothing wrong with boys and girls having fun. <laughs> so, um, now we'll talk a little bit more about, about some stuff before I head off and we leave the rest to be concluded next episode and then get into the real juicy, spooky stuff for this spooky season. Um, we can talk about Son of Sam and Charles Manson right as the veil between our world and the other world begins to lessen. So that way we can really penetrate into the spiritual realm, which you'll only be able to do if you give me all your fucking money, okay? So just do it. But while Wiley often discounts the idea of brainwashing and the group and the idea of intelligence connections... Um, you know, here's something that he also just kind of says a little bit offhanded, um, that just like he did with his mother's MI6 connections that I find to be, um, interesting. And, um, so while he normally discounts the idea of any kind of mind control or brainwashing taking place in the group, he, uh, you know, says basically like, no, there was no mind control. I mean, there was different things that were used to try and control members of the group and stuff, but it wasn't, you know, mind control up until he says this um, when discussing the church further in the future after it was no longer just, you know, some Scientology-inspired psychoanalytic group. But this is, he's talking during the time period when all the religious, spiritual type of symbolism and verbiage is being used. And he would say, Marianne was also well able to hold us spellbound or hypnotized, as I now believe, with stories of her life before the process. Of course, I never realized it at the time, but many of Marianne's techniques were designed to hold us in thrall. The constant emotional turbulence, the enforced fatigue of those endless sessions, the brutal stripping away of everything we'd previously held dear. All this gave some truth to the accusation of brainwashing, or at the very least, a systematic, hypnotic reprogramming that the spooks at the CIA would have envied. Hmm, very interesting, Wiley. But anyways, now let's talk about another aspect of the Process Church, and that is fascism. And most of you guys have probably seen the uh, symbol of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, a very uh, 
spooky symbol to say the least which you could argue is a stylized swastika it kind of looks like i just suggest that you look up an image of it yourself um if you just type in process church of the final judgment it's right there first image that pops up from the wikipedia page uh, you know google kind of just brings it up next to their name when you look it up but it's like a mix between like a celtic cross and a swastika so it's kind of like a stylized swastika and the four parts also make four p's together which we're not going to get into right now we don't have the time my friends but next episode we will get into the uh whole idea of the 4p movement that supposedly splintered off from the process church and its relation to some uh murders possibly some murders so anyways um i mean you have the main symbol of the process church which is basically a stylized swastika which um if you ask me pretty unchill does not give very chill hippy dippy countercultural vibes to me but hey man that's just me maybe i'm not hip and trendy like all the cool kids in the process but i'll take the connie corso that is in this home and i'll put it up against their german shepherds and we will let them battle it out in the spiritual arena um dog looks scary right now I guess it's technically my roommate's dog but she looks scary right now she had a cute little orange collar that made her look a lot more approachable and nice but uh it it broke and she you know needs to have her tag on and stuff when she goes and hangs out in the yard and whatnot but you know right now she looks very spooky she has on a, a metal chain she looks like a badass uh, a hellhound one of those mythological bitches of lore but anyways, fascism. Um, once again, we are quoting Peter Lavinda, and he would say, Their emblem was a stylized swastika, which in all fairness could have meant they were Buddhist. However, the philosophy of the process and its alleged origins as a front for a German neo-fascist group, coupled with Marianne's beliefs that she was the reincarnation of Joseph Goebbels, seems to indicate a Nazi rather than Buddhist inspiration. And uh, perhaps we will get um, more into uh, its alleged origins as a front for a German neo-fascist group later. I haven't been able to find enough information about that so far, but um, very interesting idea. But also, um, I could not verify that Marianne considered herself to be a reincarnation of Joseph Goebbels. It is certainly something that a lot of people in conspiracy lore like to say about the group, but do want to do an honest and fair telling of this story. And so I could not confirm that um, she considered herself to be the reincarnation of Joseph Goebbels. But anyhow, um, I don't think that we have to say that she believed herself to be the reincarnation of Joseph Goebbels to uh, look into some of the susness of Marianne in specific and the Process Church as a whole um, kind of interest in far right-wing bullshit, Nazi stuff, just in general, not chill stuff. Not chill stuff, my guys and ladies. Um, so, once again, we are going to read from Wiley, and he would say, and there was always plenty to challenge us, some of it in retrospect deeply disturbing. 
Marianne never made any apologies, for instance, about having considerable sympathy and respect for the Nazi regime. Doubtless, it suited her authoritarian personality. A story I have heard relate more than once is of her as a small girl of 9 or 10 who found herself leaving her physical body and being transported into Hitler's bunker during World War I. There she would slip around the table in her astral form, whispering into the general's ears. Whether she ever claimed to observe Der Fuhrer's legendary rages, I don't recall, but if she had, I can only imagine she would have egged him on in his carpet-biting frenzies. As we at the inner circle came to know Marianne better, I'm sure each of us in our own way had to struggle to make sense of or to excuse many of her more extreme opinions. She clearly admired much of what well-educated young liberals disliked and dismissed. Although not classically anti-Semitic, she could sound that way when applying the exceptionally harsh teachings of the process on responsibility and holding the Jews as liable for the complicity in their own destruction as the Nazis were for their genocidal impulses. It was also clear that she held a much higher regard for animals than humans. She had a soft spot for dictators and right-wing ideologues. She was passionately she was passionately anti-vivisectionist and a great collector of dogs, large dogs, German shepherds mostly. And after that, Wiley goes on to mention kind of the unfair characterization by the process's detractors. At least that's his interpretation of. Uh, them sacrificing German shepherds, you know, because they love their German shepherds, and uh, especially Mary loved them more and had more esteem for German shepherds than she seemed to do with people. But here's my thing is I don't necessarily know if them caring for and loving their German shepherds would negate them using them in sacrifices. I don't necessarily know if the idea behind, you know, I, I'll, I shouldn't say I don't necessarily know. I mean, the idea of, you know, sacrificing a, a life, um, magically speaking, it isn't that you disdain the person or creature that you're sacrificing. That's not the idea behind it. Um, you know, if anything, you could almost debate whether or not it's a sacrifice if you just want to fucking kill it to begin with. But anyways, also another interesting thing about this quote is, you know, she's not necessarily anti-Semitic. She's not anti-Semitic in the, in the classic sense, um, but she did love the Nazis and the Jews are responsible for being sent to the gas chambers, which, I don't know, draw your own interpretations, but I don't think that that's, you know necessarily a check mark on the um, pro-Semitic side by any stretch of the means. But this wouldn't just be the extent of their fascination with far right-wingers. But now we are going to read yet another quote from uh, Wiley, which how many damn times am I going to say? And yet again, we are going to refer to the works of Timothy Wiley. But anyways... Wiley would write, Michael and I stopped in to visit George Lincoln Rockwell, the American Nazi, out of allegiance to Mary Ann's interest in extreme ideologies. It was about 11 p.m. on a dark moonless night when we drew up to a nondescript track house in our Thunderbird. What we didn't know was that there had already been an assassination attempt on Rockwell a few months earlier. When we knocked on the door, we could hear a lot of uneasy scrambling from inside before the door cracked open and a pair of hooded eyes checked us out. 
Perhaps it was our black uniforms that reassured him because after some toing and froing over his shoulder, we were allowed into a small plain room. Rockwell sat in the only armchair. Like our dogs in the back seat of the T-Bird, he too was sitting up, sitting rigidly upright. He didn't get up when we were ushered in and pushed in front of him. He looked younger than I thought he was going to be, with a buzz cut and a surprisingly open, pleasant face, marred now by a thick scowl that didn't leave him until we were there. Whether the scowl was for us or to impress his bodyguards, it was hard to say. He had a military bearing, but was clearly a frightened man. Around the room, standing awkwardly, each with a hand tucked in their jackets, were half a dozen large men, also scowling. It was not an easy conversation, and the men never removed their hands from under their jackets. The conversation was brief and so inconsequential that I recall nothing of it, except the relief I felt in getting out of the place. Later, I found out that Lincoln Rockwell was killed in August 1967 by a disgruntled ex-member of his party, and only days after our visit... I should add that Michael is the scion of a wealthy Jewish family, and I can only imagine that Marianne instructed him to visit Rockwell as a way of testing his mettle. And so for those of you who are not familiar with George Lincoln Rockwell, kudos to you, but he was the founder of the American Nazi Party. And once again, I will uh, give credit where credit is due to Recluse and once again, thank you to whoever uh, messaged me to uh, check out Recluse's series of articles, The Process, Strange and Terrible. Um, but he would point out um, about George Lincoln Rockwell, um, just how you know weird of a figure he is, and how he was associated with many curious figures and may even had some type of connection to the JFK assassination or JFK assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, and so, uh, I don't know if I'd say Lee Harvey Oswald was the JFK assassin, maybe scapegoat, but nonetheless, the alleged JFK assassination, we all know what he's saying. But um, he quotes from a book called The Beast Awakens by Martin A. Lee in his blog post, and I do think that this quote is worth reading in light of uh, what we just read from Wiley. Rockwell communicated regularly with neo-fascists around the world, but his main focus was on stirring up trouble in the United States. Not surprisingly, Rockwell's organization became a magnet for kooks, criminals, juvenile delinquents, psychopathic misfits, and other mentally unbalanced individuals who joined the American Nazi party to gain a sense of self-worth and belonging that was otherwise lacking in their alienated existence. Often these losers drifted from one extremist group to another. Such was the case with Don Burroughs, who once edited Stormtrooper, the American Nazi Party's newsletter. Burroughs quit the group because he felt that Rockwell was too moderate. <laughs> A former Nazi Party associate claimed that Burroughs enjoyed torturing dogs, including his own pet, Gas Chambers. Curiously, Burroughs' name and address, along with Rockwell's, were subsequently discovered in the notebook of Lee Harvey Oswald, the man accused of assassinating President John F. Kennedy. After JFK was murdered, Boris wore a button with the words Lee Harvey Oswald fan club. And once again, Recluse will point out that this Burroughs, who is mentioned, would commit suicide on October 31st of 1965. You guys starting to get those spooky Halloween vibes that you crave so desperately? Am I delivering 
on the spooky Halloween nature of this season? Can you feel the veils getting closer to parting, my friends? But anyways, um, so yeah, Burroughs would commit himself, um, commit himself, commit himself to the freaking grave, dudes, on uh, Halloween of 1965. And he also points out, Recluse does, um, that his interest in killing dogs is, you know, appropriate in the context of talking about the process church of the final judgment and the allegations of them killing dogs, sacrificing German shepherds, and whether they were involved with the German shepherds that were found in Untermeyer Park, which we will probably delve more deeply into in our Son of Sam episode, my friends. And Recluse also kind of uh, wonders if William Luther Pierce, who had found the National Alliance, um, you know, was at this meeting where the process church was and how it's uh would have been possible i believe because he said that uh william luther pierce was uh, a member of rockwell's party before going on to start that um start the national alliance and then he just kind of goes on to point out the um interesting uh connections between those who have neo-fascist Nazi ideologies, just all the fascism that is kind of um, existent in the process church and amongst their members, which is certainly interesting given that there is, you know, the fascist underground that has kind of always existed um, ever since, you know, the end of World War II. The, the Nazis didn't really go away all that much, but you guys know all that stuff. And um, just another thing that um, I believe that Wiley mentions in his book is that they would also meet with the segregationist governor, George Wallace, and that they would even perform a faith healing on him, or uh, they allegedly um, would do a faith healing on George Wallace. So anyways, there's some very interesting um, connections between the process church and fascism and we will probably end up coming across that subject again as we go into our deep dive of the process church but anyways yeah george lincoln rockwell and the process church just one of many of the interesting figures of america's underbelly that will come up during the course of us talking about the process um but just another couple of things. We're talking about Halloween. We're talking about spooky stuff. But also Halloween is a time for the provocative and just also things that are unfortunate. So let's talk a little bit about the process church and their relationship to sex, which is, from my reading of Wiley's book and what I've seen, kind of confused. Um, there would be periods of celibacy that... Um, people would be, you know, told to participate in, would be strongly encouraged. Um, but then there would also be times of what you, I guess you could call sexual licentiousness that would also take place in the process church, you know. And Wiley, you know, says that the whole idea of them being this, like, black sex magic cult is just kind of far out there. It's not true. It's an unfair picture to paint of the group. But let's also read some stuff from Wiley's words and himself. I'm saying it again. Um, so, 
that way we can really judge if uh, this is kind of an unfair interpretation of the group or not. Um, Marianne, as would become more evident later, was no stranger to sex magic. I don't believe she had any formal training in this, but given her psychism and her former profession, this would have been a, would have been a natural path for her to explore. She was also well aware of the work of Wilhelm Reich and his unconventional theories concerning human sexuality and the power of orgasm. However, I don't think Marianne really knew what she was doing. Having fallen out of favor again, I wasn't close to her through this period, so I can only infer her motives from what filtered down the rest of us. The spiritually married couples, for example, when they were not tucked away for their special week and therefore required to be celibate, were encouraged to engage in a little sacred ceremony in which, after a short prayer, each person brought themselves to orgasm. The male of their pair emptied himself into a carefully placed silver bowl, the content of which, with the addition of a splash of paraffin, was then ceremonially, ceremonially burnt along with another short prayer. Although Marianne's stated aim was to get us through any residual sexual repression and inhibitions, there was clear... Oh, sorry. That's, that's the next quote. That's the next quote. My apologies, fellas. Um, but anyways, so yeah, Marianne, no stranger to sex magic. So um, there is at least, you know, some admittance of uh, sex magic among timothy wiley in regards to the process church it definitely was going on now to the extent that it was going on and what all exactly would take place during some of these sex magic rituals the group would participate in who's to say but we can know a little bit more from reading from wiley and so let's uh yeah let's get to that quote that i almost stumbled upon reading too fast Although Marianne's stated aim was to get us through any residual sexual repression and inhibitions, there was clearly another edge to the orgies. While none of us would have been able to acknowledge it at the time, it seems fairly obvious now that her other agenda was to control us through sexual guilt and humiliation. It's difficult to assess the damage inflicted in the course of those sexual shenanigans, but children were conceived who didn't know their true parents. Pairs who had no desire for one another were shoved together. Heterosexual men were persuaded to perform acts clearly distasteful for them, and the women were sometimes treated like goddesses and sometimes like whores. These events certainly had long-term effects on me that I found most disturbing. After I finally left the group in 1977, I found it agonizingly difficult to attend parties, as in the back of my mind I fretted that the gatherings might devolve into an orgy. It made me quite irrational, and I frequently had to leave an otherwise wonderful party early. It took as many as ten years before I could relax and simply enjoy being with my friends without an unpleasant anticipation destroying my peace of mind. And so, you have these orgies that are often directed by Mary Ann. People are told to do things that they don't find pleasurable. And the whole thing, it's not like a more spontaneous um, organic type orgy but it's being directed and managed and people are tell being told to do things that they don't want to do and you know Wiley believe that this has to do with instilling sexual guilt and humiliation as a form of control and I think that you guys can probably imagine 
other things that uh, it could be used to uh, control people by like you know kind of like the blackmail aspect of it i mean even if it's not uh, being filmed, I mean, if you're a heterosexual man, especially, I mean, even though that a lot of this started happening during the swing in 60s and stuff, I mean, you could imagine how some information like that or um, what we're about to read about, which is a little bit rough, um, not that we haven't covered some other rough stuff. We started off with rough stuff with the uh, with the altar candles and, and stuff like that. And my friends, we're going to keep getting rougher um, as we delve more into the story, um, especially when we get to the son of Sam and uh, the Charles Manson stuff. But uh, yeah, you guys can probably imagine other means that this could be used as blackmail, even if they weren't being filmed or anything. I mean, you just have, you know, heterosexual people doing homosexual things that could be used to blackmail somebody. Um, we're about to talk about this rough instance, which you guys could probably. Um, imagine just the verbal blackmail that could be um, used uh, against it and just all the other kinds of means of control that these orgies could be um, used for and also you know just uh, kind of lending more credence to some of the the ideas that uh, have circulated about the process about it being a weird black magic sex cult kind of thing um, but anyhow um, Wiley writes, I admit, and this is, um, uh, well, it says here, it is, is around the time of the New Orleans chapter. I had been moved down from Chicago to the New Orleans chapter to set up an art department and work on the next issues of the magazine, The Love Issue. I was more than happy to leave the Chicago chapter as it had become the scene of one of the more personally distressing events of my time with the process. The young woman I've spoken about as having claimed me as her spiritual father, and with whom I'd had the fractious week-long absorption in London, turned up in Chicago, pregnant, and with instructions to marry me. Her child had been conceived in one of Marianne's sexual gatherings, at which I wasn't present, and about which I knew nothing. From what I understood much later, the orgy had encouraged my wife-to-be to act out her prolonged fantasy of being gang-raped. Consequently, there was no knowing which of the seven men who obliged her was actually the father. Marianne sidestepped the whole issue by instructing the unfortunate girl to tell me nothing of this and to convince me that I was the child's father. We did it as we were told. We got married at a Cook County courthouse and settled into what passed for a married state. We were never close, barely ever made love, and came over time to thoroughly dislike one another. Intuitively, I always felt the child wasn't mine, as my wife grew more insistent that he was. Now I can appreciate her sad dilemma more, but back then, when I knew none of this, I'm sure I treated her poorly. I do recall that she resented me for not attending the birth of her child, and being the progeny of a rich, aristocratic family, my wife loved the experience of being in general hospital world warward since the process didn't allocate money for health insurance and uh, wiley would go on to say later on in the book that he would uh kind of let the kid down i don't know i was gonna say let the kid down easy but he would uh tell the kid that he is not the father and that uh the the child would uh be reunited with his actual father which i don't know i guess that seven dudes had to had to visit the old cup or whatever to figure that one out 
But anyhow, um, yeah, kind of, uh, kind of gross. I'm back to being super sex negative again when all these freaks, these processian freaks do their freaky business. Um, but anyhow, we are nearing an hour and 30, and I think that that is going to pretty much conclude today's episode. We will cover the second half of the process uh, story. We will complete the timeline, and then in the following episodes, we will, um, yeah, just discuss their relation to the Son of Sam stuff, the Manson stuff. It's going to be a good old October time, so make sure that you tune in for that. Um, yeah, follow the podcast so that way you can keep up with what's going on. I am uh, going to be releasing a little bit more regularly than I have had for the past three weeks. I was releasing an episode each week, but over the past three weeks I've been very busy, so I only got one episode out there to you guys during the middle of that time period, so apologies for that. I uh, definitely plan on being more consistent the way that I had been for the first six or seven episodes prior to that. Um, But, you know, life came up. I've had a lot of work to do. I've been having to help some family move some stuff and clear out a bunch of stuff after the death of a loved one a while back. So, you know, that's been a little bit crazy. There's just been a lot of crazy stuff going on, but I do plan on getting back to regularly uploading. And I think here um, in this next week or so, I might uh, just put out some episodes as quickly as possible just to feel like I'm um, getting getting caught up with what my plans are for regularly uploading. So you guys might get uh, another episode in less time than usual, perhaps in the middle of the week. I should have... Um, a little bit more time coming up here in the future because I think that for the most part, not all of it, but I've cleared up a lot of the stuff that I've been having to deal with. Um, if you're still listening to it, I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, leave a review on Spotify or iTunes or whatever. The more reviews, the better. Makes it look like a reputable podcast. So let's see if we can fool these people. Um, don't forget to give me your life savings. I'm going to get you the black cloaks in just a matter of time. And we are going to start the, um, church of the thing observers. Um, just kidding. We're, we're not going to do that. I belong to a not creepy church and I don't feel any reason to start my own. So anyhow, that was today's episode. Hope you all enjoyed it. I love you all. Take care. It's been a lot of fun. Stay tuned for some more scary stuff. We're going to get into some scary stuff, fellas and ladies. So take care. Talk to you all soon.